This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you had a good weekend. A little bit of snowfall here in the metro region, making it look right Christmassy after Christmas break. We had a very green Christmas here in the uh, capital city area anyway. Uh, And we've got more snowfall coming tomorrow. So get those... um, shovels and snow blowers ready. Uh, public discussion surrounding the labor crunch in healthcare has primarily focused to date on the recruitment of doctors and nurses. In fact, just today, the province announced that it is leading a delegation to Ireland this week aimed at recruiting doctors and nurses, but it takes a long list of medical professionals to make the system work and serve the needs of the public. In November, the province announced a number of initiatives for the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals represented by both QP and the Association of Allied Health Professionals. Well, my guest today is president of the AAHP, Gordon Piercy. Hello. Hi, Linda. Uh, How are you? Great. So happy to have you on the show because uh, I think you're going to open a lot of people's eyes here this afternoon. Um, Starting with, I guess, uh, who the AAHP, not easy to say sometimes, represents. Yeah, it's uh, the Association of Allied Health Professionals, where uh, we consider ourselves a small but mighty group. Uh, We have about 750, 800 members, primarily working inside of Eastern Health, and uh, we represent about 26 occupation groups, and it's a lot of health healthcare professionals that uh, you know, but um, and are outside your physician and nursing world. So. We represent pharmacists, physiotherapists, social workers, psychologists, uh, and, you know, some of those are bigger. And then we have some smaller ones as well. We have some, Linda, that are even like one or two people in the entire province that we represent. Uh, Like we have uh, a kinesiologist. We have pastoral care clinicians, and we have some of those are very small groups. They may be two, three, four people in the profession in the entire province. So we are, even though it's 26 occupations, it's a broad and diverse group. You know, we have, I think, over 150 social workers in our membership, but we also have these groups with one and two or three or four members in them as well. So some of these are highly specialized. Yes, uh, most of our members, well, pretty much all of our uh, members are university trained and we're all registered health professionals. So we all have some, you know, we have, you know, professional standards, professional accountabilities. So registered social workers, psychologists, same thing. and, you know, uh, accountable to the public for our practice and what we what we provide to the public and to the healthcare system. And yes. Sorry, you called the association small but mighty, and the 750, uh, 750 to 800 uh, members is nothing to sniff at, but 26 occupation groups within that small group. That seems astounding to me. And you know, like you say, there's, you know, it, it represents you know, sometimes one, two, three people. Yes, yeah, and it is, and it's a broad, diverse group. And, of course, Linda, with a group like that and with small numbers in the profession, a lot of our membership are trained outside of the province. 
So we have, uh, you know, we, we, we're fortunate in the province that we do have a school of pharmacy, we have a school of social work, we have a respiratory therapy cohort going through CNA. So we have those numbers and we have that in the province. But when you look at some of our other professions and some of our big professions like OT and physiotherapy, like they're trained out of province. So our occupational therapists, physios, all that group, we're relying on getting them here or getting them back from other provinces after they've done their training. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that uh, a little later on in the program, but where are some of the biggest gaps right now? For us right now in our professions, uh, we always have, you know, there's always a, you know, depending on the situation, sometimes it's rural versus urban. Psychology right now is huge for us. We have about a 40% vacancy rate inside of psychology. And uh, the other one that we're struggling a fair bit as well is with respiratory therapy. And of course, I've spoken in the past about respiratory therapy issues. We have a number of, we do have a permanent position vacant, but that's a 24-7 service here in Metro. So of course, Linda, when you're running a 24-7 service, you need a, a, a call-on pool. You need, you need that casual group because inevitably, People want their holidays, sick leaves occur, family leaves, family responsibility, those types of things happen. So you need to have that group to cover the regular staff, the permanent people, I'll call them, uh, when they want to access leaves or they're off for one reason or another. So, you know, we have to get, you know, in those type of professions where we have, um, have the shift workers, you need a strong um, replacement pool for when, when uh, there are leaves or other vacancies. Even if even if the position becomes vacant through a retirement, sometimes there's a transition point of advertising and filling a position. So even that could lead to an interim break in service and uh, the need for a, a strong casual float pool within the discipline. Right, because I imagine, um, you know, you probably have shifts for respiratory therapists, you know, for known issues, but then there are emergencies which would require a call-in. Would that be the case? Yes, yes. So, and, you know, these are the type of things, and, and I would say to you, Linda, as well, in respiratory therapy, they're working, I would describe it that they're working on skeleton staffing. They really should have more people inside the facilities at different times during the day. So, uh, you know, if you, for example, health sciences, there's typically two here in the evenings. And, you know, it, it's a busy, as we all know, it's a provincial tertiary center. It's a busy place, and there's a lot going on here. And when you have two uh, staff looking after all those diverse care needs, that can, you know, that can be a problem. And if somebody's off sick, if somebody has a night off for whatever reason, uh, that, that shift has to be filled. And, uh, you know, that's where we've had some problems with regards to, you know, trying to get people in or trying to get, you know, people working 24-hour shifts or consecutive shifts or, or um, concurrent shifts. And that can be a, a real challenge sometimes. And it's certainly a drain for that workforce. So in terms of uh, respiratory therapy, uh, what, what do they do primarily? What, you know, because, you know, it means something to you, but it might not mean something to the average listener. Yeah. Respiratory therapists, they're, they're highly skilled, highly trained professionals that are primarily involved in airway management for, you know, and that can be in a lot of scenarios. That can be someone coming in after having an accident through the emergency department. That could be someone who uh, post-operative care. 
you know, they're, they're at the bedside managing ventilators. Someone who finds themselves in critical care, same thing, caring for ventilated patients, but also doing a number of, you know, um, following up with things, be it on the medicine floor. So a really, really diverse group who do a lot of different things uh, with patient care. The other thing, Linda, is that we know that respiratory therapy has a lot to offer in outpatient and community care. Now, they run a PFT lab here in uh, in the health sciences, and they also run, you know, they do similar types of things, clinics, in, even in rural settings where they work. But we know that because we've had limited numbers in respiratory therapy, they could probably be doing some really amazing growth and really good community and outpatient work that unfortunately, because their numbers have been so low here in the province, they haven't been able to actualize that probably as nicely as uh, as it could be. There are some initiatives starting and, and ongoing. But uh, right now, we're spending a lot of time just trying to get those shifts staffed in acute care. So, you know, uh, critical care environments, medicine floors, our rural, um, our rural RTs as well, who um, are almost doing around the clock 24-7, 365 care in, uh, in some of those small communities. So it's uh, it's a busy space for them, and uh, you know we'd like to see them be able to do more things, uh, you know, on a preventative and a wellness initiative more so than just treatment of illness. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's behind some of the shortages when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is President of the Association of Allied Health Professionals, Gordon Piercy. We'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Our guest today on On Target is the president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals, Gordon Piercy. And we've been talking a bit about uh, his members and some of the uh, labor crunch that uh, various professions within um, his union are facing. So what's behind uh, some of these shortages, Gordon? Well, Linda, there's, you know, health professionals, they're always been in, you know, high demand. And you know, I've been, I've been a, in this union for 26, 27 years, and uh, we've always gone through little waves of highs and lows with numbers and things. But some of the big things that we're finding now is, you know, we, we've, as I said earlier, we have uh, programs that are offered outside of this province. So... We rely on those people, you know, either getting people from other provinces where they've trained, where they've got those credentials, the physiotherapy degree, the speech pathology degree. So they got that education inevitably from somewhere else. Now we're in the mix of trying to get them back in Newfoundland and Labrador. So getting them back here so that we can access their skill sets and, of course, to benefit the residents of the province. Linda, even when you have homegrown, you know, I was on a health court task force committee there, and we talked a lot about growing your own, our own people, and getting them, you know, I'll use an example, a young person from Placentia who did well in high school and wants to become a physiotherapist. So, you know, they get into a physiotherapy program in another province, and, you know, they go off, and we're hoping, and we certainly hope that they will come back to Newfoundland and Labrador and practice somewhere here because we have needs. But they don't always, and that's the thing. That's a risk that we run when even when our own homegrown talent packs up and moves away and trains for four or five years in another province. We run the risk of them setting up a life in that province and deciding, well, maybe heading home isn't what I want. 
They may find a partner in that province and settle down and make a life. They may be, that province may want to hang on to them, or another province might make them an offer to, that might be, have some degree of, you know, lucrativeness for them, and, and they want to do that. So that's always been a challenge in a lot of our disciplines, especially those that are trained out of provinces. They have to come out, and then we have to bring them back. And how can we do that? Is the province offering any incentives to to get those highly trained professionals back here? Well, I'll be honest, we've been slow on the mark on getting that moving. And, uh, you know, we, we've had some discussions, and certainly as a union, we've had some discussions with them about, you know, we need to uh, we need to really pull this up. We really need to get on our A game with this as a province. I think we've historically thought that we've we've done okay with that, you know, growing our own, maybe getting them back. Maybe even people who never heard of Newfoundland or Labrador ever lived here. Some people do take it on and move here and set up a life here and, and come and become a psychologist or a physiotherapist or what have you. But we are now in an era, Linda, where things have changed considerably. So, you know, we have situations where some of these disciplines – they only graduate, some of these disciplines, they only graduate a small number of graduates every year. So when you take something like a genetic counselor where there's a small group in that profession graduates every year, and we're competing with everyone across the country, some of our disciplines, some of our professions have shortages nationally and even globally. So when you get that skill set and when these young people or might be older people, whatever, but when they graduate with those credentials, they're in high demand inside of this country and even outside of this country. And I'll be quite honest with you, Linda, I'm not sure that the powers that be here in our province have really uh, tuned into that right now. I'm really not sure that they're, they're, with, they're with us on that. Yeah, so if they're in that high demand, all somebody has to do is offer them that bright, shiny <laughs> um, dream that, that, you know, hey, come here, work here, this is what we'll give you. And you're like, mm, well, I was thinking about going home, but I'm going to get this there, and you're offering me this. I mean, it's a natural decision-making process, isn't it, for most people? Absolutely. And, and Linda, the other thing that we know now, too, is that, and I think this, again, has it's, it's part of the perfect storm of healthcare recruitment and retention. Because I think even when you had maybe young people who grew up in Newfoundland and Labrador and probably got some, you know, desire or commitment to want to come back here, the other thing we know is that university education is the cost point of university education is ferocious across, again, most of the country. And... A lot of these people, and a lot of these are master's uh, trained people, so they've probably got an undergrad degree and they've probably got a master's degree. And when you leave university after eight plus years even, and you owe probably $100,000 in debt, if someone's offering you a sign-on bonus, that's going to look really, really attractive. You know, again, you're coming out, you're going, you know, you're saddled in debt, and uh, you're going to probably look at the people who – are offering you something that's going to make that attractive to you. And uh, we're not doing that, apparently. 
we, we started. I think we have a long way to go, and I think we really, you know, again, and I, I'm talking to government on a weekly basis, and I know I'm not the only union leader who's doing that, of course, but we are we're talking to them on a continuous basis and encouraging them to, you know, we really got to get our A game together on this. So, you know, back in uh, November, early November, we had another province show up here in Newfoundland and approach our respiratory therapy graduating class, the class of 23 up at CNA. And uh, Linda, I can't even begin to tell you, the, the day I found that out, I was absolutely devastated. I didn't even know what to do with it. And I, I emailed people inside the Department of Health. I emailed uh, the Assistant Deputy Minister for Health Professional Recruitment and Retention. And actually, one of the lines I used in my emails, I don't even know what to do with this. I just profound disappointment. We need every person we can in some of these disciplines, and respiratory is a really good example of that. But uh, we we need everyone we can get. And when you get the phenomena of healthcare, there's actually two terms I think get to use, Linda. There's healthcare harvesting and healthcare poaching. And I think harvesting is coming into a province and like grabbing up all their new grads because they're fresh out of the fresh, you know, newly minted, uh, ready to roll, you know, coming out of the universities or the colleges. And they're ready to go out and they're young and they're keen. And, you know, and that's quite common. And that's happened for years uh, in, in other jurisdictions. Out west, uh, Western Canada, I think there's been a lot of this, you know, Alberta's big and rich and we're going to steal your healthcare professionals. And BC has kind of come back at different times and they'll steal back. And I think that's been a little bit more of probably central and Western Canada phenomenon through the years. I think when they left Atlantic Canada alone, uh, probably because they knew that we weren't, you know, we were Atlantic Canada and maybe they just left us alone. I don't know. But right now, I can tell you that there are other jurisdictions who are actually studying the collective agreements in various provinces to see, you know, to look at pay, to look at benefits, and to see what provinces may be vulnerable to coming in and poaching healthcare workers. So it's uh, more than just a strategy now. It's uh, uh, it's almost predatory. Yes, yes. And to the point where I, I think earlier in the year, I think one of the premiers out west actually wanted the feds to intervene and create some legislation to prevent healthcare poaching and healthcare harvesting of healthcare workers. Because there is that, you know, we're coming to take this and we need that. And, and I mean, people have their own. Linda, you and I know, I mean, people got the right to, if I want to move to Ontario tomorrow, I can move to Ontario tomorrow. But when you see that, um, you know, I'm sure if you, you're a skilled health professional, to be glad to have you. But when you see that planned, coordinated, sequenced, you know, uh, attack, for lack of a better word, to come in and to try to snap up your graduating class or to snap up um, your current employees, uh, people, you know, and of course, they're very attractive as well because they're seasoned, they're skilled, they've got lived experience and work experience in the field. So, you know, if you can, you know, snap up a psychologist who's got... 10 years experience, the health authorities can be like, that's awesome. Let's, let's get that person or, or what have you. And uh, it's going to be, um, that's going to be the new normal. And, and again, another term I've used when I've talked to some people inside of government, I said, we have to get used to the fact that this is going to become our new normal. They're going to come and they're going to come looking for our new grads in programs where we actually generate grads here inside the province. And they're going to come looking for our seasoned, skilled professionals who are already working inside of the health authorities or inside of other services. And who might be uh, feeling a little 
tired or put upon, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, workloads when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals, Gordon Piercy. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today on On Target is President of Association of Allied Health Professionals, Gordon Piercy, and uh, we've been talking a little bit about some of the challenges uh, faced in the various professions uh, under his uh, purview there. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, workloads now in the workplace. Well, Linda, for us, uh, first of all, I'll start off by saying most of our professions, we're a group that are used to being busy and like a lot of healthcare workers because there's a rarely shortage of work. So we're, we're always used to being busy. And even prior to the pandemic hitting us, we, you know, we were noticing an escalation in workloads and not just numbers, Linda, it was also the you know, a lot of our members will talk about just the complexity of their cases and the complexity of the situations that they will deal with when they're providing patient care. You know, you are getting that piece of, of you know, higher needs, uh, more risk, you know, things that can be at times more problem prone. So that was part of the reality that members were living with prior to the pandemic. And then you throw a global pandemic in on top of that, and it just strained the healthcare system exponentially. And I'll use an example, like our members who do work on uh, like discharge planning. So a lot of our team members are involved in helping families, helping patients move, you know, do a discharge planning process. Whatever the need is that needs to happen before discharge can occur, that's a big part of what our teams do. Our social workers, our occupational therapists, our physiotherapists, dietitians, heavily involved in that process because it's a lot of what they do and the assessments they do and the recommendations they make that helps the success in getting that person home and hopefully keeping them home, which is where most of our patients want to be. They want to be home, but we want them home safe. We want them taken care of. And the pressure that we found in the acute care systems of, you know, needing beds to turn over, needing resources for patients to make the discharge complete and safe for when they go home, you know, and those resources not always being there when they needed it, whether it was a home care worker that you needed to hire or, you know, uh, supply issues, because even getting equipment and, and supplies for uh, clients who are going home on a home care routine, they need things. And sometimes that was very, very hard to access. So that's part of the complexities and things that they are dealing with. We know the drain that has happened with mental health and the provision of mental health services. And right now, mental health, that is a group, you know, We have, and I'll tell you quite openly, some of our own mental health people are struggling with their own mental health, and a lot of it is the workplace pressures that they're experiencing as they're doing what is a really difficult and a really intense job at times. Uh, Is it leading to burnout? Yeah, absolutely. And we're hearing that quite a fair bit. And and we're seeing some of that in, you know, our members just disclosing to us that I need some time away, I need to... Uh, take a break, you know, there are things there, and just feeling exhausted. And some of them, you know, still pushing and pushing and pushing, hoping for some relief, hoping that things are going to get better. And 
in a lot of situations, Linda, it isn't. If anything, it's it's exacerbating and getting worse. You know, I, I we have members who maybe a few years ago, uh, some of our seasoned workers who are, are, you know, working and probably eligible to retire. And some of them are like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And that's really sad when you know that they initially had an interest in maybe hanging on even though they're eligible to retire, but they're like, no, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And um, and that's happening with some of our senior season people who are eligible to retire. But for others who are still working through their years and, and providing that service, they don't have a lot of options other than looking at things, you know, again, other jurisdictions who may want to hire them. And the other thing that we're seeing is the attraction of private practice. So again, a lot of our clinical social workers, our psychologists are looking at options to maybe go out in the community and do private practice work, which may not be as uh, intense or demanding as some of the stuff they're experiencing inside the health authorities. So what needs to change there? Uh, I mean, we, we have heard and we've heard from the Association of uh, Psychologists. In fact, uh, Janine Hubbard is going to be our guest tomorrow. So we'll go into that a little bit further with her. But um, what is, is causing this exodus from the healthcare system and into private practice for psychologists, for instance? Well, and th- there's a couple of things to it. And, and certainly, uh, I will tell you, you know, pay is, is a piece that is certainly a factor there. And we need to be somewhat competitive with what they may, uh, it may not even get to the point where, you know, the healthcare system can achieve what they may make in private settings, but we do need to try to at least make some efforts to be competitive there. The other thing is we also need to realistically look at workloads and we need to look at whether or not what people are doing, is, is it realistic, is it sustainable? The recruitment and retention issue ties directly into this as well, Linda, because, and and just to give you a a real, uh, like a micro issue of how this can be tangling, you know, again, we uh, use a a rural site that we represent members in, like Buren, you know, Buren Peninsula. And, you know, you can take a three-person physiotherapy department and they're working away and they're doing a combination of inpatients, they're covering long-term care facilities, They're also doing outpatient caseloads. You take a three-person physiotherapy department and one physiotherapist resigns. You've already got one-third of their work now not being done. So the pressure that falls then back on those two remaining physiotherapists is going to be massive. And it may actually bring about, you know, there might be services or there might be pieces of work that they may not be able to do because they've just lost one-third of their workforce. Now, someone will look at that and say, oh, a physio resigned in Buren. That's not that big a deal. But it really, really is. And that's some of the nuances that, again, we're tirelessly communicating to government that when sometimes, especially in some of our rural settings or with smaller teams or whatever, you don't have to lose a whole lot of that resource to have an adverse effect on the workload and patient care and patient outcomes. And when you're talking about these smaller teams, I'm wondering, you know, if that, because not everybody is going to come to you and say, look, I need to take a break. Some are just going to put their head down and continue on and the workload builds up and then all of a sudden they become agitated and they become a little more snippy and they become a little resentful and all of those kinds of things. Does, Does that lead to more problems in the workplace? 
Absolutely, Linda, and we, we've seen we've certainly seen an increase of that in in the recent years as well. You know, the workplace culture. There's been a lot of uh, difficult situations where we've had to deal with. You know, and again, I. I'm not here to find fault with anyone, but, you know, again, I think it's a product of the situation that a lot of healthcare workers find themselves in. They're overwhelmed. They're overtopped with what's coming at them. And you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And I think a lot of people just keep going with the hope that something is going to improve. But over time, that wears you down. And, you know, it's a situation now at times, Linda, where uh, I was recently talking to one of our groups where it's not even for them anymore. Their fear now is about, I don't want to be here when something goes dreadfully wrong. So that's really scary when you hear that from inside the healthcare system, that we have members who are like, I don't want to be here when an adverse event happens because we have the perfect storm for an adverse event to occur. So that's weighing heavy on some of our members in some of the areas where they are working chronically short-staffed, overwhelmed with situations, overwhelmed with the demands that are coming at them, and, uh, you know, unsure of which way to turn. Do you have uh, concerns as the province works towards implementing the health accord? I know the uh, the minister and, and the province as a whole has been touting the health accord. We're one of the few provinces with that type of a plan in place. Um, but uh, do you have concerns as, as we sort of work towards putting some of these uh, major changes in place? Absolutely, Linda. And I, you know, I worked on one of the healthcare uh, task force subcommittees. I was actually on the workforce readiness subcommittee of the health accord, and uh, which, you know, as a union president, that probably makes sense. But um, you know, we're seeing situations where, you know, the health accord. The vision of the health accord, I don't think there's one health professional in the province that would argue with some of the philosophy and some of the goals and vision that is outlined in the health accord. My fear is implementation. And are the resources actually going to be there to make stuff happen? So, again, with the backdrop of, you know, less healthcare worker resources and those people being available. And then in some cases, we're looking at building up resources and and having more people. I'm not 100% sure where those people are coming from. We've also talked about redeploying. So are there services you can redeploy out of current services, out of current situations, you know? There may be some places and spaces where that can happen. But again, I will say to you, if you're looking at, I'll go back to the Buren Peninsula physiotherapy example because that that would fit. When you've got three people working in a department, how do you redeploy with that when they're already busy? And, And rural is a good example. And rural is one place where we need, the health accord needs to make some really good strides, really big strides. But when you've got... You know, again, whether it's a social worker, whether it's a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist, and they're already covering and taking care of a mixture of inpatients, long-term care residents, and probably has an outpatient caseload on top of that. Where do you redeploy with that? What, What do you do with that? So clearly in some of those cases, Linda, we are going to need new resources. We're going to need new people. And I'm not prepared as a union leader to see my members getting more responsibilities thrown upon them 
when they're already feeling really inundated and really overwhelmed with the responsibilities they have today. So we have to be really careful, and we've got to do some really good planning around that. In in terms of that, uh, were you, you or your members surprised to hear about the millions announced to replace St. Clair's in light of, of some of these needs on the ground with um, human resources? Uh, we were. I, I think. I think a lot of people were shocked about the St. Clair's announcement because, it, you know, I, I'm not sure. There didn't seem to be a lot of dialogue. Now, not that I'm in the loop on every dialogue, Linda. You know, I've, I'm a union president. And I try to keep in the loop, but I didn't hear much about it, and I don't think others did as well. And you know, Linda, I'm. I'm not going to. I'm not going to bash, you know, strengthening our healthcare infrastructure because I know, and even here in the city, other places as well. But here in the city, we have some aging healthcare infrastructure that probably needs to be replaced. Thankfully, the Waterford Hospital is moving forward, you know, and we're seeing that happen here on the Parkway, and that's a beautiful thing. And as as a social worker myself, I cannot tell you how happy I am to see that happening. And because mental health needs to move forward in this province, big time, absolutely. So we know we need new infrastructure, but I will say to you, the people are people heal people. It's not chip rock. It's not bricks. It's not glass that heals people. It is people that heals people. So if we're going to stay on that philosophy, we can build beautiful hospitals, beautiful health centers. Linda, in some of our rural areas, we have beautiful facilities now. I worked in St. Lawrence years ago, beautiful health care center in the town of St. Lawrence. Do they always have the health professionals they need in that community? I don't think so. And, you know, so we got to wrap our head around, yes, you know, it's great to have uh, latest technology, state-of-the-art facilities. That's beautiful. And and I'm not going to say we don't need that. But we need to be just as much, if not more aggressive, around the health care professional recruitment and retention. Our guest today on On Target is the Association of Allied Health Professionals uh, President, uh, Gordon Piercy. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And we're back. My guest today on On Target is Association of Allied Health Professionals President Gordon Piercy. And uh, Gordon, you were mentioning some of the uh, professions that you represent, including things like occupational therapists and social workers, that sort of thing. You were talking about discharging patients from hospital and that sort of thing. And it struck me that, you know, that we seem to have a lot of this attention on um, ERs and acute care, for instance. We've been talking a lot about emergency rooms. But what about those outpatient and community-based services? Is there enough emphasis on that? Well, Linda, that's something that we've we've always been championing in our in in our membership because a lot of our membership feel they do their best work at the community and at the outpatient level because you don't you're not always boxed in by the the confines of an acute care admission and some of that. So again, mental health is a good example of that. You know, when you can get that longer term piece happening, that continuity of care with a patient or client, and have that kind of engaged piece. There's so many great things you can do there because, again, you can focus on the wellness, you can focus on the preventative, and you can, you know, you can put good energy into that and hopefully avoid acute care admissions and disruption to the patient, quality of life, and things that they can, you know, uh, you know, stay healthy, remain healthy, usually in the environment that they want. 
I know we've talked a lot this year, and I'm, you know, with all the media reports, and we know we don't have um, we don't have some of our community care centers and some of those outpatient departments staffed with people. But it's so vital to have that there, and our members are a big, big piece of that. And we there is so much unlocked potential inside of allied health professionals right now. Again, I mentioned the respiratory therapy group a while back. That's a group, you know what? They could be doing some amazing outpatient clinics and, you know, community-based home visits for people with severe and persistent respiratory illnesses. We have been held back on developing some of that because of where we're to with numbers. So it's not only, Linda, the vacancies that we have in, you know, we have X number of psychology or RT vacancies. I would actually say to you, there are positions that we need that we have not even created yet. And there is tremendous growth. And we need to really focus on that quality of life and wellness piece. And I know I'm saying that with the background of a crisis unfolding, you know, and we're struggling to staff emergency departments on a weekly basis here in the province. But if we, it takes that investment on the front end of good community and outpatient services to pull down the demands that are eventually going to hit acute care when we've got those services in place that can help people stay home, stay well, get the expertise and service that they need and not be left um, to get sick and then present to the eMERGE or the acute care setting. Indeed, keeps them out of long-term care, keeps them out of the ER. Absolutely, absolutely. takes that added strain off off the system. Um, You mentioned your concerns about implementation of the health uh, cord, and you just mentioned uh, uh, positions that we don't even have. Um, Do you feel like there's been enough appropriate planning for health care needs in Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, I think there's, I think the health court, again, there's some good vision there, but I think, you know, if we're going to start, if we want to have primary care teams and community-based teams to support people when they're in the community, we've got to have a realistic view of, you know, what, what do we need? What do we need in those communities? I'm, you know, I'm very fearful that uh, they're going to try to come at my membership, my group in particular, and our professions, that they're going to come at them with, you know, well, we'll hire a physiotherapist, but we're going to give you a catchment area of 20,000 people, which is really unrealistic and not even sensible or practical. We know that some of our children's services across the provinces needs to be strengthened. We have the Janeway. You know, it's a primary site. It's a sort of provincial site. And, you know, we do a lot of stuff provincially, but we also need more people on the ground in some of our rural communities. So there's a lot of growth and a lot of things that, you know, there's great potential to be unlocked. And, you know, are we going to get to that day when we're going to be able to reallocate maybe some things from acute care settings and put them in the community? Maybe. But I would say to you, Linda, that we're going to need a front-end investment. And we're going to need to, you know, because you're still going to have people presenting with illness and disability who are going to need help and support with that. But we also need to get people out there who with a wellness and a quality of life philosophy to help people do those good things that will keep them well, keep them at a hospital and have them aging well and and, and free of illness and, uh, and disability. You've referenced uh, a crisis containment culture. What does that mean exactly, and, and what needs to change? Well, Linda, I've been a healthcare worker myself for 27 years. And 
I think we've had a long, long time of all of us in the system, and I don't want this to sound blameworthy because I know, and again, as a frontline healthcare worker myself, you do what you got to do to make things happen. I, I work with managers who work so hard here day to day today, trying to keep things running today. And they come in tomorrow and they do the exact same thing and they just try to keep the system running. That's what I refer to as a crisis containment culture. So you're putting all your energy and a lot of energy, a lot of good energy, Linda, that could be expended other places. But we throw all this energy at trying to get something glued together, bandaged together, use a healthcare reference, to survive the next 24 hours or to get us through the long weekend. You know, I see, I see that with, our, again, the respiratory therapy group is a good example of that. So, so much energy gets thrown at Get them through the long weekend. Get them through the Christmas. We just came through Christmas. Get them through the Christmas holiday schedule, whatever we got to do, to just make it run today and hopefully have everything seen to. We almost, we're almost at a point in healthcare, Linda, where I almost wonder if we need someone doing the day-to-day stuff and someone doing the vision, the future, the outcomes, the benchmarking, and giving us a vision for the future. Because even in my interactions with government, I know there are positions in government that's supposed to be working on health policy and future focused and different things like that. But I think right now everyone's just getting swallowed up in the in the moment crises. And I'm not sure where we're to with the long term vision. Yes, we have the health accord. And yes, it's a great document. There's a lot. There are some nice things inside the health accord. Uh, You know, when we talk about, you know, determinants of health and wellness initiatives, Linda, my members have been talking with that for 40-plus years. This is not foreign language to allied health professionals, other health professionals as well. But our people, you know, they get the community. They want to be in the community, some of them, and they know that that's a key to, you know, creating well communities and well people. So that's not a foreign language to us. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, some of us have probably been the architects of that. But we need to have the resources in place to make it happen. And we can't just keep, you know, crisis day to day. Let's try to build something. You know, it's interesting because we know in the last few weeks there's been a lot of talk about the premiers uh, going to the feds about, you know, healthcare funding in their respective provinces. And I totally support that. But we also know that, you know, the federal government's asking for some, you know, standards, some accountability, some benchmarking. I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing either, because we 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 do need a little bit of that. We need a lot of that in the healthcare system right now. We do need to look at our outcomes. We need to look at, you know, is sending someone a day home early from hospital well? If they're readmitted in 72 hours, we didn't really save the system anything, did we? When we realize, you know, maybe if that person who went home early, if they had had their full occupational therapy assessment done and some recommendations might have been made about how they can stay home and stay home safely, then that would have been helpful and would have prevented a readmission, would have prevented that distress to the patient, would have prevented, you know, God forbid, another injury or something happening to them because they went home probably a little too early. And, you know, those are the things that we really, really, you know, we really need to focus on. Our members, um, uh, some of our members have used this line, Linda, and I'll share it with you. And it's a very powerful line. They'll say, your inability to plan does not become my crisis. And often we see that because as something is trying to be fast-tracked and maybe faster than it should be and the healing needs to happen and things like that, 
you know, then all of a sudden the person, you know, the, the client themselves or the system finds themselves in crisis, and then they want everyone to run around and fix this crisis, you know, and that might be an OT who's got an outpatient caseload book today, and you want them assessed in emerge, or you want them to kind of get this priority assessment. Well, if if we had been a little bit more planful and purposeful on the front end, maybe that crisis wouldn't happen on the back end. And again, that's a language that our membership speaks, and we get it, and we know it, and you know a lot of healthcare practitioners get it as well. But again, it's a sign of the pressures that the system is experiencing right now. Um, you know, I also use the phrase "penny was it penny wise, pound foolish." Um, you know, we we hurry things along, and sometimes think we're doing great things and we're saving money or we're doing whatever. But sometimes in the long run, it actually costs us more. Not to mention the human distress that may come in behind that if the client gets sick again or goes home and has a fall because they went home a little too early or what have you. Gordon Piercy is the president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Gordon, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. An awful lot there to um, digest and think about. Uh, We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was great being here with you today. I always like getting these messages out, so I appreciate uh, the time uh, to, to have a chat with you. Thanks so much. And we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to speak with the uh, president of the Psychologists Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Janine Hubbard, uh, no doubt about some similar issues facing her profession. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone.